Hello, health investor. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Emily Tim. Emily is a registered dietitian and certified diabetes care and education specialist with a board certification in advanced diabetes management. She currently owns and operates a virtual practice, Emily Tim Nutrition, under the handle The Endocrine Nutritionist. Emily helps women with diabetes, prediabetes, PCOS, and related endocrine conditions to lose weight and optimize their metabolic health in a sustainable and approachable way. She's currently accepting new clients in her 90-day one-on-one coaching program and her group coaching program called Full Life. Emily has been a dietitian for over seven years and has spent five of those years working specifically with endocrine conditions and weight management. She has facilitated hundreds of groups for weight management and diabetes at the Cleveland Clinic Diabetes Center, as well as University of Pittsburgh Medical Center's Department of Endocrinology. She graduated from Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, with a Master's of Science degree in Public Health Nutrition. In the episode, Emily shares two of her favorite dietary patterns for weight loss, healthy grocery shopping tips, her top three recommendations for anyone wanting to sustain weight loss long-term, and more. If you love what you hear in today's episode, I'd so appreciate it if you'd pass it along to a friend, family member, or coworker. I'm super grateful for your help in spreading the word about the Health Investment Podcast. Okay, it's time to hear from Emily Tim. Enjoy! Hi, I'm Brooke Simonson, Certified Nutrition Coach and host of the Health Investment Podcast. Here's the thing. You deserve to feel amazing. But here's the other thing. There are so many confusing messages out there. Week after week, I'm going to share tips and practices that actually work for simple weight loss and sustainable wellness because I wanna help you get healthy for good without any BS. When I'm not podcasting, I work with clients one-on-one. So visit the show notes to book your free consultation. And don't forget to leave a review so that others can become trim, energized, confident, BS-busting rock stars like you. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Hi, Brooke. Thanks for having me. I was hoping you could start by sharing with everyone your story and your background and specifically what led you to become a registered dietitian. Yeah, for sure. Um, So I was really thinking about kind of, um, you know, from the very beginning of the evolution of me wanting to become a dietitian. And I really grew up uh, in a family where food was so central to connection. Um, I think part of that might be just growing up in Jewish culture, um, but also just that it was something really uh, central and special to my family. And my mom cooked dinner most nights. Um, We always ate together. We always talked around the dinner table. So there were a lot of really strong memories from my childhood um, surrounding food. Um, But also... I kind of grew up from an early age understanding that connection between food and health. So I watched my dad, um, he was diagnosed with Crohn's disease and he went through multiple surgeries and had kind of this period of figuring out what, um, 
what foods worked for him, what foods didn't work for him. And I saw just how individualized that was. Um, And then not too long after that, I watched my mom get diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And through that um, treatment process, she was also diagnosed with celiac disease. So um, which they figured out was kind of the root of a lot of the health problems that she had struggled with. And so I also watched my mom adopt uh, an individualized diet to manage her health. Uh, and so that was, you know, really uh, impactful for me. It really kind of made me realize just how powerful food can be for our health. And so I kind of knew I wanted to study food and nutrition uh, when I was looking at colleges. And during that time, I became very sick and was also diagnosed with celiac disease. Um, so it's just kind of a culmination of just all of this, um, all of these autoimmune conditions in my family, and then personally getting diagnosed with celiac disease, um, and having to manage that myself as well. I also think being a kid, um, who struggled with obesity, um, and being diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis and kind of managing that throughout my almost, I mean, when I was 10 years old, so almost my whole lifespan, Um, and so that played a big role as well, um, in my kind of interest and passion for nutrition. So you mentioned celiac disease. I'm wondering what type of dietary pattern do you follow currently? Is it just eliminating gluten or do you do other things to manage that? Yeah, so definitely gluten-free diet. Um, that's the only treatment we know of for celiac disease, but also, um, eating less processed foods and eating more whole foods. And my personal nutrition philosophy, what I follow um, and what I talk to my clients about is following um, a Mediterranean eating pattern. Um, And so that eating pattern includes a lot of whole grains, beans, healthy fats, fish, nuts, um, fruits and vegetables, uh, herbs and spices. And it's really a focus on, on whole unprocessed foods. How do you feel about just the general population eliminating gluten or whole food groups from their diet? Yeah, um, I don't think it's a good idea. Um, <laughs> so uh, that is one thing that I see so much of. Unfortunately, I even see healthcare practitioners promoting a gluten-free lifestyle for managing chronic conditions. Unless you have celiac disease or unless you have a true gluten sensitivity, meaning you have a, uh, you know, a reaction that you can tie back to gluten that is, you know, a GI reaction or skin reaction or whatever it is. But if you don't have either of those things, there's really no need to eliminate gluten in the diet. Um, And in some cases, I'd say in most cases, it can do more harm than good because a lot of gluten-free packaged foods are much, much less um, healthful than their gluten-containing counterparts. Yeah, I mean, eliminating gluten is really, really tough to do. If you do it properly as someone with celiac, it's knowing certain restaurants you can go to and the tiniest bit of it can cause you extreme pain and inflammation. Is that correct? Yeah, for sure. Um, And then it's also cumulative. So there's a lot of, there are people that don't know they have celiac disease. And so just not knowing and having that cumulative effect over time um, it can take a while for your gut to heal from that. Um, 
and for your your body's inflammatory response to go down um, following that diagnosis. I think it's a great point you made too about how that's such a buzzword now or buzz term, gluten-free. So every packaged item will say gluten-free or non-GMO or organic and possibly then people are relying more on packaged foods than even the whole foods when trying to go gluten-free. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, and I see that a lot too, um, is it's kind of like you think if you're picking up the items at the grocery store that say gluten-free on them, that that, that means your diet is healthful. Um, but yeah, not true. What do you recommend for someone when grocery shopping to choose the best minimally processed foods? Yeah. So I think it really just has to do with going into the grocery store with a list and having a meal plan um, kind of in your head so that you know the things that you need to buy. That way you're not as tempted by all of the like quick cooking options or frozen options or things that are going to make your life, you know, easy in the moment. Um, so I think having a plan and knowing the foods to buy, because it is harder to buy whole foods, um, without knowing what you're going, going to do with them necessarily for the week. That's a really good point. It's so much easier to go into those middle aisles of the store. And if you don't have a plan to just pick up, you know, some processed item that you could throw together real quick, but you could also throw together a meal extremely quickly. And I know you post some really awesome quick meals that are very simple, uh, but it requires that little bit of extra planning. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think too, um, when you have a plan and you're doing most of your own cooking, you don't even have to be as, uh, obsessive about like in the, um, ingredients in the foods you're buying. Cause you kind of, you know, you're already opting for those whole foods. You're already putting them together yourself. You're kind of the one, um, in control, uh, versus like packaged foods or even restaurant foods and things like that. Mm-hmm. As you were just saying that I was thinking, Almost you're the ingredient list creator instead of someone else creating it for you. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's a great way of putting it. What are some of the biggest misconceptions out there about nutrition? Maybe one of them already was the gluten-free idea being, you know, 100% obsessively gluten-free. But what are some of the others? I, I think right now I have a lot of clients coming to me thinking that low-carb and keto is kind of like the only way. Um, and again, a lot of the time they're getting these messages from healthcare providers. Um, so I think keto is really having a moment and we don't have a ton of research on keto being like some super sustainable, super successful plan, uh, for people reaching their metabolic goals. So I think that's a big misconception. I think there's also kind of coming back to the idea of eliminating gluten. There are a lot of elimination diets right now floating around. Um, I, I work in the endocrine space. And so I get a lot of clients coming to me who have been following something called the autoimmune protocol. Um, I had never heard of this, <laughs> heard of this protocol or this diet before working in this space virtually. I hadn't heard of it when I worked with in-person clients, but this is another huge, huge misconception, huge, huge plan that has a huge, huge following that doesn't really have any evidence behind it. And it can be really stressful to people to kind of have this impression of nutrition that nutrition is all about elimination. So um, I kind of try to take the stance of inclusion versus exclusion. And so I really have to kind of backtrack with a lot of my clients and work on um, including those foods that they 
have kind of sworn off because of something they read or they saw um, on social media or on the internet or from a from a provider. I think the stress that comes with all of those exclusions can just be just as detrimental to your health as for sure. certain yeah. foods possibly. You know, it's like eat the cake and don't stress about it. Your body will react, I think, much better than if you're eating something and then really stressing and going down this spiral of I shouldn't have done that. I feel guilty and blaming myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not good for your body either. Yeah, exactly. Um, and like some of these eating plans, there's they're asking elimination of things that I, I really can't even make sense of, like certain vegetables and um, certain elimination of olive oil, el- elimination of beans, elimination of grains, all of these things that we know to be, um, you know, really healthful. Uh, so it's it's strange <laughs> for sure. What about are there any misconceptions floating around out there about weight loss? Oh gosh. Yes. Oh my gosh. This is like one of my, and you're in the weight loss space too, correct? Right. Yeah. So this is, um, for sure. I think I, a lot of people come to me wanting to lose weight and thinking that there are certain things that they, you know, if they could just do these few things, if they could just reduce their calories and exercise more, that weight loss would happen. Um, I think that's actually the biggest misconception is that weight loss is as easy as reducing your calories and moving more. Um, If it were, we wouldn't have an epidemic of people struggling with their weight. Um, So I think that's a huge, huge misconception. I think also there is a misconception that weight loss is possible um, and that weight loss is something that can be maintained long term. Um, in the research, what we see right now is that people can really only maintain maybe a five to 10% weight loss, um, over a period of, uh, you know, know, three to five years. So when people come to me wanting to lose these very, very large numbers of weight, I do have a conversation with them about what realistic weight loss looks like. And also that there are so, so many health benefits that can come from just a 5 to 10% weight loss or even a 5 to 7% weight loss. So you can get those improvements in metabolic health without needing to lose, you know, 20, 50, 100 pounds. Um, If you are a person who needs to lose more weight, I also don't discourage those people at the same time because I know from working in practice, anecdotally, that I have seen some people be successful, people that are really plugged in, uh, really motivated, uh, that have an accountability partner or a healthcare provider to work with them. I have seen those people be successful, but I think the most important thing is with weight loss to to go slowly. Once you lose your first five to 10%, really to give your body time to adjust to that um, and learn that new set point of weight before going on to lose the next five to 10%. Because if you try to do it all simultaneously, you're going to hit a wall where your hunger hormones are screaming at you um, and it just becomes unsustainable and it becomes really frustrating. Hmm. That's such an interesting point that you don't hear much is taking that pause and really being okay with the slow process, not just the how much weight can I lose as fast as possible and then keep it off forever. Yeah. Yeah. And I think with weight loss, um, weight loss is much easier than weight maintenance. 
Um, but we don't talk a lot about weight maintenance, and we also don't talk about weight maintenance as a success, um, which it which it really is. Um, and so I have people that clients that come to me who maybe have lost a lot of weight, and they're kind of in that maintenance stage. And we do have that conversation of you know you've lost fifteen percent, twenty percent of your body weight. For you right now, maintenance might be a, you know is a huge victory. I know you work a lot with clients who have PCOS or diabetes or some similar metabolic disorder. I'm wondering how is losing weight with one of those conditions different from losing weight without one of a condition like one of those? Yeah, I, I'd say it's different um, because people with PCOS and diabetes, they do have these common denominators of insulin resistance and inflammation. And when we break down what that means, I think we hear this term insulin resistance a lot more now, but we might not know what it really means for us. Uh, And what it is, is it's your body's insulin not working as well as it could. And so insulin is this hormone that helps blood sugar get into our cells in our body so that our body can do things, (laughs) do biologic processes, keep us alive. And so when you have your insulin not working as well, um, you get this kind of buildup of blood sugar in your, in your body. And so we know about prediabetes, but for a lot of people, insulin resistance can even be at a pre-pre-diabetes stage or a pre-pre-pre-diabetes stage. So something that when you become aware of it, um, you can really work to um, reverse pretty quickly with, with dietary changes. But So insulin resistance is kind of a unique factor to PCOS and diabetes, also inflammation. And so we hear a lot too about inflammation now. And inflammation is really just kind of this state of stress in the body. That's kind of how I think about it. So when you have those two things um, with these conditions, uh, again, uh, it's not as simple as just eat less and move more. A lot of my clients come to me having tried calorie counting or having tried Weight Watchers and just not seeing success from those plans. And so with these types of conditions, we really delve into the quality of food, the quality of the meals that you're creating, um, timing of food as well. Also thinking of, uh, again, this inclusion mindset versus an exclusion mindset. Um, to kind of get back to a place where we are, including all of these foods that help with inflammation and insulin resistance. Do you find that a lower carb approach works well, or do you not even go there? Yeah, that's a that's another one that is like so many layers. Because um, like in the media right now, lower carb is kind of equated to keto. And Mm -hmm. keto diet is usually like, you know, 20 grams of net carbs up to, you know, maybe 30 or 40 grams of net carbs, depending on the person. So very, very, very low carb. The average American following a typical Western diet actually eats close to like 300 grams of carbs a day, sometimes more. And so it's, it's kind of a strange, like subjective thing um, in terms of when you reduce that amount of carbs, that person is then eating low carb for them. Um, but prior to that, they weren't, they weren't eating, you know, what we would consider like a normal range of carbs. They were eating much, much more than that. So 
This is also a problem that we come across in research because they will research different low carbohydrate diets, but the amount of carbs can be very, very different from study to study. So all that being said, <laughs> kind of the general consensus, believe it or not, is that a diet that's about 130 grams of carbs a day um, can actually be a low carb diet. So mm -hmm. low carb might not be as low carb as you think. Um, and I tend to work with my clients on what I would call like a low to moderate carbohydrate diet. So somewhere in that 130 to 150 grams of carb range, just depending on, on the person. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's kind of gray. It's kind of confusing. Um, but there's no need to go, you know, to either end, to either extreme, I would say there's no need to go towards keto where you're like super, super low in carbs, but there's also no need to go to that really, really high upper range where you're over 300 grams of carbs. And I think, as you said, using the Mediterranean diet technique or dietary pattern, you're already reducing a lot of your processed carbs, right? Through eating more whole foods. So it's exactly. also this idea of quality versus quantity. Exactly. Yeah. And I, when you go to eating more high quality carbohydrates from whole grains and beans and fruit, um, those types of carbs are much more satiating, much more satisfying. So um, you don't get that same um, like appetite increase that you would if you were eating a lot of processed carbohydrates. I saw you posting the other day about some muffin that's higher in protein than other conventional types. And then I know you have some alternative pastas that you recommend. What are some of your favorite skews out there when it comes to higher protein, lower carb, semi-processed foods? Yeah, um, I think one of my favorites would have to be the bean-based pastas. So I love these pastas that are made from chickpeas or red lentils or black beans. Um, those can be a really, really amazing food that is a processed food, but it is a food that works really well for blood sugar stabilization and appetite control. Um, I also think sometimes uh, like purchasing a muffin like that, that is higher in uh, protein and lower in carbs can be a nice option to have on hand for like for a snack or a dessert, but also baking using almond flour or coconut flour so that you can have something that's both um, satisfying, but also satiating. So definitely increasing the fat and the protein content in, in baked goods can be really helpful when you're trying to lose weight. Have you ever tried Sybil's pasta? Sounds very familiar. Um, it's C-Y-B-E-L-E-S. Um, they sell it on Thrive Market, or you can also buy a box of ginormous, or I think it's 10 boxes you get on Amazon, but it's pretty cost effective that way. Uh -huh. But they have different colors. So it's these rotinis and some are orange and red, depending on the types of vegetables they have. But they're all lentils and vegetables. But the white one... I believe is lentils and parsnips. Mm. And I honestly can't tell the difference between regular pasta and that pasta. And I, we even, my husband and I have both cooked it for our extended family and they all love it as well. So that's the true test, you know, when you can take something beyond and use one of your favorite pasta for recipes sure. and people can't even tell the difference, but it's just, I'm so grateful that these other items exist now. So it's not, again, this elimination of pasta. It's just, what kind of simple swap can we make 
and still cook all of our favorite recipes and enjoy food because food's meant to be enjoyed. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think with these pastas too, I, I think these are actually a much nicer option to use than even something like the zucchini noodles or carrot noodles. Um, I think eating those things, um, the meal tends to not be as satiating or as satisfying. So it is nice to have an option that's um, more of a satisfying alternative. Um, you can also use whole grain pasta. So I'm, I'm really not against using, you know, whole grain pastas too. Uh, it's just the bean-based pastas, they they do tend to be a more filling option. And as I am working with clients on minimizing meals that are centered around animal protein, it can be a really nice um, satiating swap towards more plant-based meals. What are your thoughts about fasting as a dietary technique? Um, that's a tough, it's really tough. Um, I, I would say it's more individualized it really is, especially right now when we don't have a scientific consensus on fasting and if it is appropriate for people with diabetes or endocrine conditions, um, or even really all people. We have some research showing promise, um, but I also do think that it's important to that in every change that you're making towards sustainable towards a sustainable lifestyle, that it is a change that you could stick with long-term. Um, so I don't see a lot of benefit in doing something for the short, short term. Um, and I would say the majority of people, the idea of, of fasting or only eating between certain hours in the day or taking entire days where you're not eating is probably not going to be sustainable. Uh, so that's kind of something to think about too. I also think like intermittent fasting is interesting to me because when you really look at the eating window, a lot of people already eat in that window um, and don't call it intermittent fasting. It's just kind of mm -hmm. their general hours of, of eating. So I do mm -hmm. think it's individualized. I've had a couple clients where it's really worked for them. And so that's something that we've talked about. Um, it's not usually something I bring up first because I, I don't want to ever be a person bringing up something that is somewhat restrictive. Um, but then the other day I had somebody come to me who was trying intermittent fasting now for about two months. She's a nurse. Um, and so she works night shift. So she had not seen any weight loss in those two months. Um, it had not made any impact on her health or energy levels. And it was actually, it, it just wasn't appropriate for her specific circumstance because during that period of fasting, she was working all night long. Um, right. So just like there's things to consider with the fasting or the intermittent fasting. I think we're always we're always looking for something that's easy to implement that could be kind of like this magic pill almost. And so I think kind of fasting is having a little bit of a spotlight. People are interested in it. Um, I, I would just say to make sure that if that is something that you would want to try as a consumer that you're thinking about, is this something that I would want to do? um, lifelong and kind of getting closer to crafting a, a lifestyle that is sustainable for you for the rest of your life. Well, and I love that about your approach, how it's not this crash, let's lose weight in three months and then, well, see you later. I don't know if you're going to be able to sustain any of the things that I've told you. It's really individualized mm -hmm. and it's focused on, you know, what is going to work for you long-term, possibly for someone 
that would work. And then for, like you said, for someone else that wouldn't work, but I do think there's all of these buzz fads and trends. I mean, anything could be a fad that you're only going to do short term. Um, And I think you mentioned also keto, the way some people are adopting it with just full fat, less than 20 grams of carbs a day. There's all these different ways of doing it, but I mean, that's not, I don't think sustainable for the majority of people. Um, so it's just something really to kind of take a close look at yourself and ask yourself, is this something I'm doing as a crash weight loss thing that I'm just, it's just like another diet or Mm -hmm. am I really trying to implement something that will help me, as you mentioned, sustain the weight loss long-term? I would say with that too, just kind of getting back to the diabetes and PCOS population, that fasting in that population can actually do more harm than good. So I am really cautious when it comes to talking about intermittent intermittent fasting um, or fasting in general with people with diabetes or prediabetes or PCOS, um, because we know kind of another aspect of these um, conditions of insulin resistance is actually overproduction of sugar from the liver. And so when you're in a fasting state, the liver can actually produce more sugar than you need. And so it can actually backfire in terms of appetite benefits or weight loss benefits. For PCOS and diabetes, you also mentioned the root issue of inflammation. Do you have any favorite inflammation busting foods or ingredients that are some go-tos of yours? Yeah. Um, so I guess like just to talk a little bit about um, two of the eating patterns that I pull a lot from or, you know, use the most with clients and in my own personal life would be definitely the Mediterranean style of eating. So there are certain um, elements from this style of eating that are really, really powerful. Um, Extra virgin olive oil being one. So that's one of the first changes that I encourage my clients to make is to switch their whatever fat they were using for cooking before um, to using mostly olive oil. Um, And then using olive oil with uh, vegetables as well, just to bring out the flavor of the vegetables and to increase the satiety in the diet. Um, Nuts is another huge component of the Mediterranean style of eating. So for for most people that can just be adding in like a quarter cup a day of, of nuts, the more variety, the merrier, because all of these nuts have such unique micronutrient properties and unique benefits that um, incorporating more variety is uh, a really great thing to do for inflammation. Other uh, foods on a Mediterranean style of eating, fish can be a big part of that. Um, So I try to talk to my clients if they're open to eating fish, to eating fish um, at least twice a week. And this this doesn't have to be always like the wild caught, um, you know, salmon that we all strive for, but even just like canned tuna, that can be a fish source for you for the week. So um, can be approachable and realistic with that. Uh, Lots of vegetables. So with vegetables, it doesn't matter if they're fresh, frozen, canned, however you can increase your intake of vegetables during the day. um, That can really be one of the biggest things for impacting inflammation. And uh, other elements of a Mediterranean style of eating whole grains. Uh, So specifically ancient whole grains, things like quinoa, bulgur, amaranth, frica, those ancient grains all, again, contain a lot of nutrition in them. They contain protein, a lot of fiber. 
Um, so you can eat a lot of those grains. You get a pretty big volume of those grains, grains for your carbohydrate buck. Um, and also beans. Beans are one of the things that I think uh, clients struggle with to implement into their lives because it is kind of something that isn't um, common in a Western diet at all. Uh, so beans is another great one for protein, fiber, um, increasing satiety and, and lowering inflammation. So that's kind of, those are some elements from a Mediterranean style of eating. Recently, I've been talking more to my clients too about a macrobiotic style of eating. So there are certain elements in that style of eating um, that can help with inflammation and insulin resistance as well. So that would be, a lot of the things are similar to a Mediterranean style diet. So I'll just talk about the things that are a bit different. Um, pickled and fermented products. So things like pickled vegetables, um, kimchi, uh, also uh, kefir, so a fermented um, probiotic drink. You can also find um, kefir water now or um, kombucha, which will give you a similar benefit. Um, green tea is actually a part of a macrobiotic style of eating. Um, and then they talk a lot, too, about these ancient whole grains um, and making sure to include those as the prima primary whole grain source. Um, so in uh, starting to incorporate those types of elements can do wonders for inflammation and insulin resistance. And the good news is, is that in the research, it shows that you don't have to be perfect at implementing these plans. Even if you make a couple of changes towards a Mediterranean style of eating, you start to lower your risk um, for cardiovascular incidents. You can lower your risk for progressing to type 2 diabetes by 60 to 80% just by making a few changes. Um, so you can get really, really powerful benefits without needing to be perfect. Hmm. So do you kind of recommend the 80-20 rule with clients? Oh, that's a good, that's a great question. You know, it's funny. I love the idea of like, it's what you do 80% of the time that counts. But unfor unfortunately, I think when you have an endocrine condition, it is a little bit harder for your body to lose weight and it's harder for your body to maintain that weight. So I tend to talk to my clients about it's almost like what you do 90% of the time that counts versus 80, like somebody who has a little bit more leeway. Hmm. I think you'd really enjoy, I don't know if you follow her already, Dr. Annie Fenn of Brain Health Kitchen. Do you know her? I don't, but I'll take a note. That sounds interesting. Yeah, take a note. I interviewed her on the podcast, but she's basically spoke to a lot of what you did. And she used to be a physician for 20 years, and now she switched over to really helping people with Alzheimer's prevention through diet. Yeah. But she was even mentioning using olive oil in baking, yep. um, and she has a lot of recipes with that. And I tried it once with banana bread, and it was the best banana bread ever, just adding that little savory note. It may sound weird to people, and it sounded weird to me at first, using olive oil in mm -hmm. baking, but now I'm 100% on board. <laughs> For sure. Um, I actually do that too, um, and I talk to my clients about that. Like if you want something uh, sweet or you want to, um, you're craving, you know, something like that. I always think it's better to make it yourself because you have that control. And I always use olive oil in the baking. It tastes so, so good. Um, so that's really interesting. And you made me think of when you mentioned, um, brain health and Alzheimer's, one element that 
I think is so important for the eating pattern that I've neglected to mention is berries. Um, so I'm a big, big fan of um, all types of berries in the diet. Not that there's a problem with other fruits, but berries specifically, we just have a lot of great research on in terms of blood sugar control, PCOS symptom management, and then also Alzheimer's prevention. Um, Alzheimer's is kind of almost termed like diabetes type three, because they are finding now such a huge connection between diet and, um, uh, and Alzheimer's and dementia. Real quick, I want to take a break from the episode to share one of my favorite resources with you. One of the BS messages floating around out there is that eating healthy costs too much. Honestly, I used to believe this myself. That is, until I discovered thrivemarket.com. Thrive Market is an online grocery platform that's essentially Costco meets Trader Joe's meets Whole Foods. I love that I can shop on their mobile app and have all of my favorite groceries, everything from natural wine to 100% grass-fed beef to nutritious crackers, everything, delivered right to my door. Last year, I saved over $1,000 shopping on Thrive. I honestly can't think of one reason not to love it. To save a percentage off your first order and see my full shopping list, click through the links in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. We spoke a bit about exercise and that the whole eat less, move more idea is flawed, but what do you recommend to your clients in terms of exercise? Yeah, um, again, this can be be individualized because if you have an injury or you know, some type of limitation, then I always say, like, I recommend people go see an exercise physiologist to get an exercise prescription so that you are embarking on exercise in a safe way. But all that being said, for the majority of people, walking is very accessible. It's something we can all do. It's something we have known benefits for. And so that's kind of like the first um, activity I talk to my clients about is just walking, can you walk, you know, 10 to 20 minutes a day, every day or five days a week, you know, increasing that, that walking time, I think is so, so huge. And also reducing sedentary time. So the American Diabetes Association came out with a recommendation earlier this year, um, not just around the amount of exercise you're doing in the type, but also just on making sure to get up and move for two minutes every 30 minutes. Um, so we've already, <laughs> we've already been sitting here now for, for 37 minutes. So we, we failed, you know, in this hour, but that's kind of the <laughs> to, to constantly get up and move, um, and reduce that sedentary time. So definitely walking, um, I think is, is one of the most powerful types of movement that we all have access to. Are there any favorite books you have when it comes to nutritional recommendations or just really accessible, awesome books that you've read? I can't actually think of a book off the top of my head that kind of captures uh, these ideas, but a couple websites that I think are really helpful. One is oldwayspt.org. That website is kind of a mecca for information about the Mediterranean style of eating, both research Um, recipes, meal plans, all sorts of things there that can kind of help you get started um, in the right direction. Another one of my favorite websites is pulses.org. Pulses.org has a really awesome recipe library for bean-based recipes. 
and kind of talks about the benefits of beans and how to use them in your cooking. Um, so those are two of my kind of favorite sites for just like launching into an anti-inflammatory way of eating. Awesome. I'll definitely put links to both of those in the show notes. And then a couple final questions for you. So one is just if someone's hearing this and they're thinking, I'm totally on board, I want to dive into this better you know, dietary pattern. What are your top three first changes you would say for anybody to make? Just small, three small, simple things they can start doing today. Yeah, that's a great, great question. I would say number one um, would be to look at what you're, what you're drinking during the day. So if you're a person who's drinking any sodas or juice, um, even diet sodas, um, I think that's one of the first changes that, that you can kind of start to make in that direction is reducing the intake of those things. So sugar-sweetened beverages and, art, and also artificially sweetened beverages. Um, the second thing I would say would be to really up the intake at breakfast and lunch. This is one of the most common things that I talk to my clients about when they first come to me is a lot of people tend to eat these like, you know, very small breakfasts and lunches, experience an afternoon crash, and then go into the evening time where the majority of the calories are eaten. So if you can start to kind of spread the calorie intake throughout the day, so you're eating more equally, um, you know, at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, that can be really helpful for having more stable energy levels throughout the day and um, also just having more opportunities to include these foods in the diet versus trying to get them all in at night. And then um, the third thing would be to transition uh, whatever cooking oil you're currently using to extra virgin olive oil. And even if you're willing um, or open to using it as a salad dressing or making your own olive oil-based salad dressing um, to using it with your raw vegetables as well. And then the final question I ask each of my guests is based on the title of the podcast, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Yeah, I would say making a health investment um, means taking the time and the energy to find a sustainable eating pattern that works for you. Um, And it's not easy. You know, there's so much information out there floating around and it's very, very confusing But if you can take some time to kind of plug in to how you're currently feeling with your eating pattern um, and make those changes slowly and gradually over time, um, ultimately you can end at a place where you've figured out a way of eating that makes you feel the best. I know everyone's going to want to learn more from you. So where's the best place for people to do that? Yeah, so I do have an Instagram account. It's endocrine nutritionist. Um, I also have a website, which is emilytimnutrition.com. So those places are great. And feel free to send me a message on on Instagram or um, uh, I was going to say by by email if I give you my email. So I'm happy to to chat and I'd love to answer your questions and help in any way I can. Thank you so, so much for sharing all of your insight with all of us today, Emily. And I knew I was going to love talking to you and I was right. So <laughs> thanks for being here. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Brooke, for having me. It was really fun. I appreciate it.
Well, that's all for today. Before the next episode drops, I'd love to chat with you one-on-one about the BS messages and methods currently holding you back. You deserve simple weight loss and sustainable wellness. So let's figure out how to make both happen. To book your free consultation, click through the link in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Health Investment Podcast. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.